Welcome to Project Zion Podcast. I'm your host, Susan Oxley, from Seattle, Washington, in the United States. This is the series Climate Brewing, where we interview scientists and presenters uh, who've given webinars as part of the Community of Christ North American Climate Justice Zoom series, all of creation from crises to transformation. We're also interviewing some of those who have uh, dedicated their lives and their attention to mitigating uh, global warming. And so in that respect, I will be interviewing my good friend, Rod Downing, the chairman of the North American Climate Justice Team. Rod's been a stu- steward of a student of the environment for the past 40 years. And along with a number of other folks has watched with dismay as global warming has progressed and climate has been increasingly disruptive. He's a dedicated advocate for change, and he's raised his voice in a wide variety of ways. Rod has sponsored political actions. He's taught classes. He's written resolutions for the Community of Christ World Conference. He has joined demonstrations and marches through the years, and he's very well-versed in history and justice issues. Rod joins us now from Vancouver, British Columbia, to discuss the topic colonialism, the industrial revolution, and climate change. Rod, let's start off with our conversation with some clarification of the word colonialism. Now, when I was a child, teachers taught me that colonialism was the process of bringing civilization to colonies that were settled by European countries. It was considered a positive beneficial phase of world development. It's come to mean something very different. Tell me about that and how the term is used today. Sure. Uh, And first of all, thanks, uh, Susan, for having me on this podcast and your very generous introduction. Um, Yes, colonialism is one of those dynamics uh, that basically we have inherited. As such, it's what I would classify as part of our worldview makeup, and that's where I want to start. And beware, I often start answering questions that nobody's even asking yet, but it's just a bit of a background that uh, worldview to me is a very important concept because uh it's it's simply the way the world is we never think about it it's what we've inherited inherited through uh from our parents to our friends to the school system to the society you know it's just the way things are and it's only when you can sort of take that step back that you start to see oh my gosh look at this uh and and one of the things you can look at then is of course colonialism uh and in particular uh bouncing things off of say our enduring principles we want as much as possible for the world and our worldview and our world dynamics to be in sync so finally colonialism um Funny you should mention uh, you had a positive reaction to it. Uh, I'm from Canada, and I learned that very, uh, well, maybe it wasn't even a classic verse down in the States. I simply always presumed it was, you know, in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. It was simply a snappy way to know, okay, it was 1492 that it occurred. Um but we all learned that in Canada, even though it really only indirectly affected us, uh, the explorers didn't reach our shores till, till later. And we've got a bit of a different history, uh, in that respect. So colonialism is uh, a very major, one of those very major dynamics that's part of this worldview and I saw it as well. It was simply taught, you know, it was the age of exploration. 
I mean, yes, it was. As a boy, that sounds you know that sounds exciting, gloating and exploring a brand brand new worlds, brand new peoples, all kinds of you know. Uh, so it had those very positive, exciting, and eventually progressive. That is, we were, hey, not only are we going out into the world, but we're we're bringing civilization. We're helping all all these people that we meet. Uh, we're we're bringing wonderful things to them. Now, without, of course, colonialism. This could be an entire university course. So you know, uh, you, you'll you, you'll have to uh, hopefully give me a little slack for for making very broad brush strokes uh, because there's so much more to it than you can uh, put into a podcast. But for sure, we can get a sense of the uh, effect of colonialism uh, relevant for today. So colonialism actually has a few different forms and, and definitions. We'll go with the simplest, uh, going from the root word of colony, um, that there is one uh, basic thrust in its definition that simply has to do with this colonizing aspect that Technology back then had gotten to the point of being able to uh, build large ships that could go large, big distances. There was the trading routes that always had to go over land and darn it all. Boy, if you could just get some ships doing it, it would be much better. So be aware of that. Whoa, that means there's economics already sneaking into the picture. Uh, of of the colonial dynamics, um, so it was a combination of you know the the exploring exciting new domains and but oh yes uh, economic reasons in there, and so it part of the name came you know from this sense of of enticing people to come. To these lands that were being discovered, Columbus, you know, sailed the ocean blue, um, to come and actually live in these lands. For some people, uh, you know, they'd been through the Hundred Years' War, Two Hundred Years' War, you know, very, very, you know, <laughs> Europe was not quite utopia. Uh, lots of uh, fight, fighting and wars that, that had gone on, lots of persecution, uh, so many people f- were easily enticed to come to these new colonies. Um, and that, in some sense, is where the root word comes from, uh, the colony, colonial, colonialism. Now, the ism, of course, uh, means there's a bigger dynamic there. Uh, and, 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 and that simply, uh, is that these people didn't come as blank slates. They came with this European kind of superiority uh, uh, complex, and I'll leave it at that. So um, when from the perspective of the nations who were promoting colonialism, one of the things driving them was a hunt for resources, wasn't it? Yes, that's why I say, you know, even from that very beginning, there there was that economic desire. Um, Now, uh, that became fueled by what they discovered once they got there. They discovered all kinds of things that, of course, they had no idea. Uh, uh, You know, of course, the gold, you know, the precious metals, the gold and silver and things like that. uh, but every, everything from lumber and uh, to eventually, of course, slaves uh, and and the slave trade. Uh, uh, you know uh, that was property as well uh, viewed at, at, at during during that time. So yes, uh, it very much and and that then connects it very clearly to 
our main focus of uh, the environmental aspects of colonialism is this um, growing uh, desire to extract resources that were valuable. And of course, that changed over over the centuries from the from I say as I said uh, the 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 lumber and the um, um, and the precious metals and things like that and then eventually coal and uh, when the industrial revolution came along of course um, uh, those were part of it and you know uh, again as as the Western world had an appetite for certain resources they they for sure went looking and taking exploiting uh, at the expense uh, of the indigenous people those resources so how would you describe at that time we're talking about the the 1500s 1600s 1700s how would you describe the world view among developed nations at that time concerning the use of resources. Sure. Um, and, and I'll, I'll broaden that simply a bit. Um, sure. Because I want to bring in the religious aspect of this, uh, because this was fairly foundational for some people, of course, for other people, they could care less about the religious aspects. They just wanted to make money. Um, but what is essential for any religious community to be aware of is that uh, at the time, 1492 Columbus, uh, the year following that, the Pope uh, had a what's called a papal bull, in other words, it has his full authority behind it, called the Doctrine of Discovery. Um, so this was a very important uh, piece of paper and would inform then the people uh, who are involved in in going out and exploring and discovering and all all of this, because this doctrine of discovery basically meant, uh, and it's uh, again oversimplified, but basically, if I had, if I, or we can just simply take Columbus. You know, Columbus went. Uh, he he hit some land. Originally thought it was India, but anyway, when he got there, he went back and said, okay, I have found this land. He planted a flag there. That was part of this doctrine. You had you had to, it had to be an a land where there were no other European uh, settlers, at which point you could plant the flag, say it was uh, discovered, and uh, claim it for your whatever country you were representing, which uh, for Columbus at the time was uh, was Spain, but you know Spain, Portugal, France, uh, Germany, Belgium, England, uh, you know all became uh, uh, very active participants uh, in in that. Uh, but that's that's quite critical because. Uh, in terms of, well, then this land then becomes any of the resources in this land then become that of, you know, Britain or Spain or whoever. Uh, so that really fueled the uh, ex kind of explosive growth then uh, during the later uh, centuries um, for that. And uh you will note that uh, the papal bill didn't give any account to existing peoples or, or sorry, pre-existing peoples that could have been there. And I want to make that per, I want to make that 
extremely clear because you know colonialism and and racism sort of intertwine in, in amongst all of this and and part of it is this religious uh, dimension that comes in uh, the papal bill was very clear if there weren't european people there there just weren't in essence people uh it was empty land in even if it could even if it was full of uh indigenous people at the time they were considered nothing absolutely nothing in terms of this whole process so again that's just part of some of the flavoring that you know that helped form the lands that we now know that shaped the lands and everything else that's part of that what i said that worldview that we we don't even think about and often don't even know about it's just the way it was so the people of the land the indigenous people they found there really were seen as simply one more resource to be exploited they were a resource of labor a resource of energy to be used and cast aside they were yes, not seen that. as human beings but only as things to be used and converted if possible to christianity yes ab- ab- absolutely uh or i shouldn't say absolutely there were, there are always exceptions there there were voices that uh you know if our church's enduring principles about the worth of all well i mean you all you have to do is go to genesis 1 god created you know in, in essence everyone in god's image and that sense of inherent worth and dignity that everybody uh is due occasionally there would be people who would recognize this is not right and and but you know of <laughs> those voices were basically uh, uh largely lost uh, in oh, yeah. this ensuing scramble and and so yes uh the indigenous people uh they they either had to flee or e- easily became uh labor with you know they do the labor but all of the uh precious uh, resources go back to uh Europe and they get nothing in return other than disease and which of course uh because they had been exposed to uh many of our diseases wiped out uh populations um and uh, I'll simply add an anecdote there in in um uh Massachusetts uh in Massachusetts in in the uh uh early early years of the settlement um there was a um governor there uh who um uh who in essence said that with the disease having wiped out most of the native people uh said that the in essence the lord has cleared the land that we possess in other words uh harkening back to your bit of your earlier question how do the people view it well there you have that's not quite an exact quote but pretty close um that wiping out of people through disease was seen as god's will because of course we were the superior people and uh, we weren't even sure at times that these uh indigenous peoples were human so what did it matter uh and and there was a quote uh, simply to give you an example of of uh how all of this was unfolding and again of course there were exceptions um and and uh, you know treaties being made of people uh trying to do better but uh, yeah a real mix and the worst of it comes through at times so what's the connection between colonialism um as it occurred in the past and the uh the 
climate change problem that began to emerge with the industrial revolution revolution what's what's the connection there sure yes yeah quite simple we will we'll, we'll just hop and skip hop and skip over a few hundred years uh, and and I, I i i simply say that in jest simply to to remind everyone that uh yeah there are some fat a lot of fascinating things if you want personally if you want to uh, dig in uh, deeper to it um but the result of course uh harkening back again to my childhood you know 1492 and the age of exploration i'm saying wow that was really exciting but i did know about uh, and this is now a bit of a pejorative term to call them Indian reserves and the Indian people, but th- th- those were the words uh, used at the time. And in fact, Canada has the Indian Act, uh, again, hearkening back to the wording that was used uh, at, at the time. Um, the point being, even when growing up as a kid, I saw this partly as this exciting thing this this progressive thing that we were doing by educating and clothing and and all of that these people um that there was this also this disconnect because i would say well if we if that went so well why are there all these indian reservations and why does every time I see a TV camera uh, at one of the reserves, it looks more like a third world, well, what we called back then a third world um, uh, area in, you know, a first world country like Canada. Um, so there was this disconnect even back then. So, to help connect those dots a little, uh, uh, a little more, which is what the heart of your question is. Um, um, what happened is this colonialism, of course, we were the might, <laughs> it was one of these might is right dynamics where we for sure, uh, had the might and we defeated, uh, in, you know, defeated any attempts by the indigenous people to maintain uh, stewardship over their lands, and and we stuck them in reserves, and we did horrible things. Like I think you have a trail of tears in the state's uh, legacy, and here in Canada we have horrible le- legacies of residential schools and such. Um, so that's that all comes out of that colonial era and mindset, uh, you know, remembering that papal doctrine that didn't consider them, didn't even consider them. You know, they weren't even human to be worth considering back then. Um, and and then just simply that greedy desire to extract resources at any any uh cost uh the most convenient thing once you have defeated the enemy is go stick them someplace that where you don't have to think about them at least too often and so enslave them or enslave them yes exactly uh as uh, depending on the circumstances and uh so the 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 indian reserves then became well where's the land we don't care about uh where are the areas we don't care about that's where we'll put them and that's where that starts to come in as well as our desire you you mentioned it earlier and absolutely that was the case we wanted to civilize them we if we were going to do anything with them we wanted to educate them about our ways of doing things and thing, seeing things and try and crush and eliminate their sense of 
whatever their sense was, we didn't care. Finally, and again, there were exceptions. There were people who saw the real value of what they were doing, but we for sure did not. We simply wanted to remove the Indian in the Indian. Um, fortunately, oh, thank heavens, fortunately, we were unsuccessful. Uh, they were uh, the uh, First Nations, the indigenous people. Uh, I, yes. Uh, had a resilience and and a, a ability to endure and come through that. Um, uh, both within society and I'll, I'll, and I want to be clear, even in the environmental movement, um, there is some repentance that needed to take place because the environmental movement, uh, you know, I was involved in it starting in the late 70s or 70s, somewhere along there. And, um, you know, it was an entirely white movement. Uh, uh, and it wasn't until the last 10 or 15 years where we said, oh, yeah, gee, um, the indigenous people, they've been on this land for thousands of years. Maybe they've got something valuable to say. So there was a sense even in the environmental movement, at least the way I see it, uh, that you see how insidious that colonial mentality uh, can uh, can show up uh, again. Worldview, you don't—it's just the way it is. You don't think about it. And the environmental movement so focused on nature and try and my gosh, we were destroying things at such a rate. You know, they, we were just frantically trying to save what could be saved. Um, but utterly blind to uh, the indigenous wisdom that we had previously been trying to snuff out and fortunately hadn't. So it was interesting, uh, very quickly, to watch us go from, uh, yes, uh, I've had decades of uh, activist work um, of various kinds, including protests and things, to, to see the, for instance, the protests be uh, go from completely white dominated to oh, uh, we'll at least do a land acknowledgement. We would do a land acknowledgement to letting oh, well, maybe we should let the indigenous people, you know, maybe bless the land to letting them say a little piece of something at the beginning. And gradually it, it got, and I'm speaking here, uh, living in the west coast of British Columbia, the Vancouver area, um, uh, where, uh, pre COVID, you, you know, uh, a few years, starting a few years ago, um, some of the protests now are completely, the indigenous people are completely in charge and we simply join them. Uh, part of that was, you know, we had come so close to snuffing out, um, their wisdom and such that they had to struggle, you know, struggle with so much, uh, trauma that we had inflicted on them over the generations. Um, and, but they have found their voice now. And I, I mean, to me, that is just one of the most wonderful things. You know that I that I could say um, they found their voice, um, and it's uh, it, it's it, it'll be a blessing to us all if we simply, you know, my keyword is dialogue. You know, every treat everybody is equal, uh, but for sure, thank heavens, uh, they are finding their voice in this. Um, uh, so they're. <laughs> Uh, there's the both the the horrible or at least a glimpse of some of the horrible things uh that colonialism and our and uh our western culture has wrought on the, uh the people 
and uh, and the gradual dawning on our part and on the part of the indigenous people to find uh, their voice and hear their wisdom. Now, uh, so I'd like to get back to that, Rod, but let mm-hmm. me just try to make sure that we've got the link clear. Colonialism was one of the things that really drove the Industrial Revolution. The resources that were coming from these other worlds, these other lands, um, fueled the uh, the Industrial Revolution that was built on inventions. And that Industrial Revolution and the, the um, continued... Uh, uh, greed for more and more resources, more and more luxury, more and more uh, ease in living is what caused a lot of the carbon emissions to build up during the Industrial Revolutions. Is that not correct? Yes. Uh, yes. Uh, nice, nice, nice and succinctly stated, uh, you know, in this, again, in this broad sweep, um, most people will, or or most uh, climate scientists will, uh, or or one of the points where they will start is basically somewhere in the mid, uh, mid 1800s with the start of the industrial revolution started with coal um, and, and basically what that is, is a very, dense form of energy that we didn't used to have we had to you, you, previously it was wood or whatever but this much more denser form allowed for industry to take off go farther expand and and you know that was the start uh, then of the industrial revolution uh, which then of course had a second kind of um bump when that went from coal to oil, uh, as oil was discovered, and oh my gosh, even a denser, more suitable, easier form to get your energy with, um, and and uh, then the, the, and with that, the search for that around the world, the extractive processes around the world, and um, uh, and to complete the link. Going back to my earlier statement where I said, well, what a, you know, back in the earlier days that continued up through to even today, uh, where will we put these indigenous people, uh, in the worst land, you know, in the land that we don't want? Um, and so there is part of the, the, the linkage and hence the term eco-racism, there was this structural racism of putting the uh, reserves or the people in these worst places, which happened to be where the big industries were starting to form because of the coal and then the oil and, and, and such. So they would be downwind of all this. They would catch all the fumes that we wouldn't you know, we'd want to be upwind of it for sure. So, and actually you can see that pattern in a lot of cities, find out where the prevailing winds are and you'll know half the time where the wealthy side of the city is going to be and the poor side of the city. Um, the poor side will always be down, downwind of the toxic materials because of course it went from oil and from oil come all the plastics, and with all the plastics come all the toxic. Um, and uh, in one of our sessions, we even deal with what's called Cancer Alley, uh, or in a couple of our sessions, uh, we deal with, uh, or, or at least briefly mention Cancer Alley, which is a very clear illustration of, of this point. So yes, that's that's how it absolutely ties into the industrial revolution and then what that kick-started and of course continues to this day um and along with that that systemic aspect that we put people on the margins into marginal land 
I have a very clear illustration in my head as a well. This was one of this was this was part of my awakening. You know, I I, I was as blind and as culpable as anyone in the early days. And I remember I got this one image in the background where these huge oil tanks, you know, storage tanks. And in front of that was this big ditch, you know, 10, 12 feet, I don't know, big enough to basically big enough to swim. And that's where the the native uh, people swam because they live right next door to it again we're in the lousiest lousiest land around and that swimming and that sort of ditch slash creek that they were swimming in was was extremely toxic and they didn't know and yet there they would be all summer long swimming in it so you know there's how you can start to see some of the tie-ins um and the horrible implications uh, that can ensue. So even now, today, as we begin talking about solutions and cleaning up the atmosphere, cleaning up areas, um, uh, making progress in terms of uh, you know electricity and uh, clean air, clean green energy, things like that, the areas we target for those kinds of solutions tend to be the wealthy. We usually don't start those solutions in the areas where the impoverished people are living. They are usually the last ones to be considered as we consider clean energy solutions. Yes, uh, great, great point. Uh, and it, it goes back to how thankful I am that the indigenous people are finding a voice. And uh, we can see this in North America, but it's really around the world because this is a, one has to recognize how global this problem is. Um, um, but even here in North America, uh, uh y- yes the the wealthy are those who have the ear to the politicians and and that's where policies get made and why they get made in the manner in which they did that's why in the first place those reserves were put in the land that nobody else wanted and and marginalized people continue to this day uh, uh, to um, suffer simply because they don't have that voice they don't have that ear to the politicians why do the why would the politicians care about them uh, you know they're probably not going to vote if they do you know uh, i can find a you know, a, a base or jiggle, jiggle, jiggle the district lines of, of voting so that I, I can still get my, uh, majority vote. Uh, and, and, uh, so yes, there, there are dynamics on many layers that have been, uh, against, uh, the marginalized and in, particular talking about the indigenous communities and hence the eco-racism. Well, we're even hearing, yeah, we're even hearing that the United Nations Green Fund, which was designed to be used for developing nations to um, enhance their energy uses in green ways. And some of those funds have been deflected to uh, wealthier nations and to corporations and things like that, rather than going directly to the developing nations that were they were designed for. So even there, we're hearing of this colonial view that the marginalized, the impoverished, those that are simply resources to be used, are not, are not worthy of um, the help and the solutions that they were designed to. Uh, to to implement yes it it it, it remains uh, 
alive and and well uh, tragically uh a, a, as as an issue uh, uh, i tend to say we still live in a very primitive world uh largely because the highest level we've been able to achieve in a practical sense is the nation state and thus any nation it's all it cares about is its own self interests uh and and hence yes you get exactly uh what you have mentioned that yes we technically we in the develop, developed world should be putting billions of dollars into these funds for the developing nations uh who we have ravaged through the centuries over to what we've just talked about um uh but the reality is yes self interest makes us very stingy at doing this makes us very crafty at at delaying and deflecting uh these types of processes but at the heart yes it is a very clear justice issue uh and and a people concerned about it such as a community of Christ with our enduring principles and the scriptures that uh go with that uh definitely uh that call to be in the forefront is a call that yes involves all levels up to that grand level of the the UN deliberating bodies and and how those funds uh get distributed in the manner the equitable manner that they're intended for because otherwise yes self interest will always uh supersede all else and uh failure will be the you know failure of justice will will be the result uh, as it tends to be so to summarize the uh colonialism in ancient times or not ancient times but colonialism starting in the age of exploration um the doctrine of discovery the rape of resources and peoples in the colonies as we call them um was is the foundation for the the uh endemic racism that continued to be expressed through the generations it is one of the things that led to the greed the desire for luxuries that fueled the industrial revolution revolution um it provided a lot of the resources that um continued to be exploited during the industrial revolution that led to carbon emissions and the global warming that we are now experiencing um that uh really took off during the industrial revolution and the colonialism mindset continues to inform our um our quote solutions for not only the placement of marginalized people but also where we implement solutions for climate change and what solutions we actually are um excited about and care about and the way we fund those solutions so colonialism has a piece in all of those aspects right straight through and needs to be addressed acknowledged identified and destroyed yes uh, again you know these uh, colonialism is is it goes all the way back to that sense of world view changing world views is an incredibly difficult <clears throat> excuse me extremely difficult task to achieve but that, that doesn't doesn't mean it's hopeless uh regardless of how long it takes yeah we've got to be able to take that step back 
and and try and bend that arc, uh, as uh, Martin Luther King Jr. used to say, uh, towards justice, regardless of how long uh, that takes. And uh, it it's it's a pervasive, insidious thing. It will always try and pop up in one form or another. And we've mentioned many. Um, uh, every once in a while, I I just I I get thinking, my gosh, what a different world we would have had if we had listened, if we had dialogued with the indigenous people from the beginning. And rather said, oh, well, we know we've got alphabets, we've got, you know, histories of Plato and Aristotle, and, you know, we're clearly superior. Uh, but if we had instead listened to the people at the time, and, and what I'm thinking of is they knew how to live within, which is our one of our most difficult problems, uh, they knew how to live within the uh boundaries of nature to live within that to be part of that to have a sense of nature and and that that's that's what we are we are simply part of nature and we have to find our appropriate place if we had only you know allowed that to seep into our worldview we would not be in the mess we're in today but because we tried to you know uh annihilate all, you know all all of those types of thinking uh now we have this more onerous task of trying to uh reclaim that and thank heavens that the indigenous peoples as i say still have that sense and might help again in dialogue us uh with us all together to achieve yeah, a more equitable outcome. So in conclusion, Rod, would you simply make some sort of a, a summary statement about how you see community of Christ being part of the solution? Sure. Um, uh, <laughs> there's a reason I'm in, I stay in this church. Um, uh, and, and, and part of that is, what I call uh, at its most fundamental level, a sense of openness is that the church, uh, human institution as well as divine. Uh, so we do sort of stumble around lumber along, but the prophetic call always is seeping through to us that call um, to love your neighbor as yourself and the call to be in the forefront, you know, uh, take a look at the last few scriptures from, you know, sort of from Doctrine and Covenants, well, sort of 149 and up, but definitely 156 and up and, 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 and so on. It gets louder and clearer. Um, uh, that prophetic call to, to, uh, pay attention, to focus on the marginalized, to, you know, uh, be in the forefront of, of uh all the all the destructive nature so yes uh and our enduring principles are a marvelous resource for us to sort of bounce off of to say well are we sort of on the right track or not if if we're going to start taking this serious my gosh if we start taking this really seriously uh whoa uh you know, we could, we, we, we may be not the largest, uh, organization in the world, but, uh, for sure, uh, we can be the leaven that God, uh, you know, God's spirit continually coaxes us to become in the world. So, uh, yes, uh, there's a, uh, it's why I stay in the church because of the, these wonderful visions and and affirmations of what can be what should be and what we're called to do thank you rod so much i really appreciate your taking the time to share uh your perspective your expertise um your sweeping understanding of 
systems and history and the concerns of justice. I appreciate it very much. Well, th- thank you. Thank you very much. Um, uh, it, it, it was a w- wonderful conversation that I, or at least I felt wonderful conversation with you and, uh, and, uh, yes, uh, wish everybody the best as, you know, we all have our own ways, uh, to have to discern and, uh, re, organize if i can use an old term uh our our way of living uh, and under god's good spirit uh yeah that's our best hope so thank you thank you